I would be a, sorry, a very, very rich person if that game would work like that. Hi, welcome to our second episode on the book Stuffed and Starved, the battle for our world's food system. We continue looking at the food system through an egalitarian lens. First of all, we start out looking at the development of the price of coffee along the supply chain and what we can learn about it. Then Frank and I get into a whole discussion about consumer and corporate responsibility. And lastly, we critically look at whether food tech and our current attempts in the food industry are actually solving the root problem of malnourishment and starvation. In the end, you will also hear from us whether we would recommend reading this book or not. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Frank Alexander Kühne. He is the chief of advisory board at the herb and spice company Raps, and he's also sharing some insights from his own industry experience. And additionally, he is the managing director of the Adelbert Raps Foundation, which offers grants for impact-focused food science. More on that later. For now, let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food sustainability. And in this season seven, we discuss key takeaways from books on the food system. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Frank Kühne. A little side note, we are in the middle of the conversation and Frank is about to describe how the price develops along the supply chain. It can be pretty overwhelming if you try to remember all the numbers. Just focus on the actual takeaways, so on the grand scheme of how the price develops. Raj Patel brings up at one point the example of unfair market prices, and he basically explains the way coffee goes through the whole supply chain until it ends up in the shelves. He basically says a family coffee farm wherever in the world sells coffee for 14 cents a kilo. And mm -hmm. it's been bought by a middleman that then brings the coffee to a mill. Um, and that middleman adds five cents to the kilo price. So he ends up with selling it to the mill with 19 cents. From a mill, it ends up in a city. Another two cents is being added on. And it's then being sold from, from that city to Nestle in, based in London, where it's been sold for 1.64 US dollar per kilogram. Basically, the first whole value chain in the country until it's at the port adds from 14 to 26 cents. The price is, has been increased. And then it jumps from the port somewhere, most likely Africa, I guess. It jumps up to 1.64 cent. And I think that's basically, that's the job of the traders. Because they have a good knowledge and access to the local markets. Some in Africa, they buy it, they ship it to Nestle and say, there's your product. It's eight times more expensive. And then he points out that Nescafe is then being sold. And I'm not quite sure if it's the price that is being on the shelf or it's the price the retailer pays. Is 26 dollars so it's about 200 times more expensive as it has been when it entered the nestle world in london so i looked this up nescafe the instant coffee costs roughly 51 dollars per kilo at walmart so the processing adds to the costs but likely also to the bottom line and that is actually what raj patel is arguing for i quote there is every incentive for food-producing corporations 
to sell food that has undergone processing, which renders it more profitable, if less nutritious. So just to summarize, because we had a lot of numbers, it starts out at like 14, 15 cents, according to the example from the book Stuffed and Starved. And then a big jump happens at the port, right, with the traders, where the price jumps into a whole dollar range between one to two dollars. Then once processed by Nestle, the price jumps into the low double digits if it's just beans, or into the medium double digits if it's processed further into instant powder. Where did all the money go? I have an issue here. <laughs> the way he explains the story, he's not talking about the value being added and the cost being related to that. And he leaves the reader the impression there's a profit somewhere along the way that is between 14 cents and 26 US dollars. And somebody's taking that into his pocket. And he's forgetting transportation, milling, cleaning, food safety issues, quality issues, grinding, packaging, storage, the salesperson being responsible to put a product into the shelf at the retailer, the person who's creating the packaging. Like he's not addressing the costs. And I actually think what he should have done is at least to make it more complex and more real, he should have addressed what are the costs added with each step on that coffee bean, on the kilogram of coffee. Because the coffee is not the same when it started from the farm in Africa and it ends up in the shelf and in the supermarkets. I would be a sorry, a very, very rich person if that game would work like that. I can tell you, like, I'm really deep into pepper and you can compare pepper to coffee. We're not making a 200 times profit on pepper when we buy it from our traders or from our farmers in Vietnam. <laughs> Definitely not. I would say it's, uh, again, like, I don't think he is saying this is the profit margin, right? He's no. just describing how the price suddenly jumps and this is interesting and i wanted to come back to this because the traders have a bigger part to play in this whole thing absolutely than we've been talking about so far and yeah. um, because that's the interface that nestle has it just talks to the traders mm. and then how are you supposed to like it's pretty intensive to try to figure out um where the trader got his beans from and what this trader actually gave to the farmers unless you have some kind of completely different like transparent solution and i know people throw blockchain around to, to, to <laughs> i i have not enough expertise in blockchain to say whether that using bitcoin for paying farmers is 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 the way to go or something it points at the issue that we're just in general lacking transparency in the food system for sure. And that's an issue that also multinationals have. And if they yes. try to trace back where they have their products from. And yes, the multinationals have a huge um, to, to like a, a markup on their products. And it's, I think it's not such a, such a problem if the other part of the supply chain also gets their due, um, their due profit. So pretty intensive to try to figure out where the trader got his beans from and what this trader actually gave to the farmers, unless you have some kind of completely different transparent solution. But it points at the issue that we're just in general lacking transparency 
in the food system, for sure. And the interesting thing about this is how that actually leads to a coffee surplus and therefore to food waste. I quote, The law of supply and demand would suggest that coffee growers would move out of the market and do something else. This would presuppose that there's something else that they can do. It has resulted in a global coffee surplus of 90 million kilos. So the criticism that Raj Patel has for Nestle, for example, is the following. With high levels of brand loyalty and with such market dominance, Nestle is in the position to raise the price that its growers receive. Yet, Nestle, Starbucks and every other food system corporation have a rock-solid alibi, us. In the name of consumers and consumer freedom, wages are kept low and opportunities for farmers to increase their income are stymied. I export my quotes and my highlights from my Kindle, and unfortunately I cannot give you the page numbers, but I do promise that these are all actual quotes from the book. Well, there are enough topics to solve in our food system. And here, just a quick shout out to the Adalbert Raps Foundation, which over the past 40 millions has invested millions and millions into food science research. And that's also a great opportunity for startups and for researchers, for people who are working on their master thesis or their PhD thesis, or the next big idea that can turn the food system upside down in the positive sense. The Adalbert Raps Foundation is offering grants to scientific institutions, sometimes also working with startups. I've asked Frank what kind of topics they're actually offering grants for. I think you can rule out anything which is nutrition, so any kind of consumer studies. We, we don't go out and because we don't believe that we have the knowledge to tell you what an entrepreneurial scientist should do. It should be the other way around. He should come to us because of his idea or her idea, his knowledge, and then basically say, look, that's something I want to achieve. So biggest headline is impact for us and not this or that topic we want to address changing the food system to, to a better food system. Check out the Adalbert Raps Foundation by typing it into Google or by following the links in the show notes. You can also connect with Frank Alexander Kühne on LinkedIn and just ping him directly. So, Frank. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Kühne, yesterday you talked about something that you heard in a meeting, I think, which was price over moral. And the moment you said that, I actually thought that it was like, a, it related to the corporates, you know, and I was like, yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. It, uh, <laughs> mostly it, yes. It, it fitted so comfortable into the mindset of Marina that the bad companies are only on profit and there's no moral in it. And I actually meant it totally different. And, and, um, but that's okay. It's actually a common phrase now in, in some of the discussion when I'm doing business and uh, we're discussing what does the consumer wants? And it's kind of a catchphrase. It's moral over price. Uh, it's the other way around, price over moral. So the idea is basically the consumer will tend to choose the cheaper price. And there have been studies on that even here in Germany where they were trying to figure out the animal welfare label. What is the consumer willing to pay for a better life circumstances for animals. I don't have to study now on hand, but to give you basically an idea. Yeah, yeah, well, come on, but it's nothing. also stingy Germans. It is, we're not okay? talking like, about That's especially bad. We're, <laughs> we're 
we're just not willing to okay yeah yeah okay yeah yeah true the the study have had in, at least the, the german study had proven that the readiness of germans to pay a decent amount more for an animal welfare positive product is basically not existing With all these books, the consumer is either the child that is being guided by the bad industry towards a bad decision for himself, or it is this person who's willing to buy locally and seasonally and eat healthy. Yeah, Either he's super utopian person or he's a, he's a child. And I think we are in the middle with the consumer worldwide. They are being influenced by the industry and by the retailers, and they have an own conscience about it. Um, And I think as a consumer, uh, you have to take the responsibility for your decisions you make. Some of my favorite highlights from the book of Raj Patel's views regarding consumers are in US stores today, one can find child-sized cards with long poles attached. While intended to help parents better find their children in the aisles, the mini cards serve an educational purpose. The flag proclaims it quite clearly customer in training <laughs> a customer in training I mean. <laughs> and regarding the historic development of grocery stores he says the only possible point of contact between the person eating the food and the person who grew it became the label on the tin from this point onwards the people selling the goods were expected to know precisely nothing about its origins And if they knew anything, were prohibited from saying it. And I must say, it is a bit weird if you think about how often um, do you actually know where these kidney beans were from. If you buy a tin, maybe I just don't look enough. But maybe that's also not the way to change things. I quote again, The honey trap of ethical consumerism is to think that the only means of communication we have with producers is through the market and that the only way we can take collective action is to persuade everyone else to shop like us. And that comes back to what we had when we talked about the book Carbon Footprint of Everything. Yes. We are in a freaking bubble. We are in a bubble of people who think about food, not just three times a day, but Absolutely. we are somehow addicted to it and we're thinking about it the entire day. And it's easy from this standpoint to say yes. people should make conscious decisions. And I love to talk to people outside of my bubble, just even recently at a friend's place. And he had these sausages, like these salami sausages from a German brand called Gut und Günstig, which is good and cheap. And I was like, oh my God, this is just like the cheapest, crappiest salami ever. Don't you think about the quality of your food? And then I thought, no, he does not because he has 10,000 other things to do and it's not his profession to think about it. Yeah, uh, I think we are also overloading consumers. With, you have to do this and you have to do that. And just like, how about just make the system in a way that it actually incentivizes the cheapest and best option to be the sustainable one. The bubble we are living in, the bubble we are talking, we both are uh, well-fed, um, um, educated. <laughs> well, we're, we're not, not overweight. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I didn't say that. Really sure. I didn't say that. But we have the ability, we can take the time to produce a podcast and talk about the meaning of our food system. Yeah? We're not worried about when we're going to go home tonight, what's going to be on the table. Like there's going to be a conscious decision about what we're going to put on the table. It's not going to be flown in strawberries. Yeah? But there are billions of people out in the world that really are 
more worried about to get at all something to eat and to afford uh, something yeah. to eat. One of the things I realized is what is the purpose of the food system? The purpose of the food system is not to feed us, but we do it for a profit. And I think you have to admit that and starting from that point onwards, what is the flaw in the system and what we need to change. Honestly speaking, I still waver for a system that is orientated on profit. Yeah? But that's a different story. And But if profit you, alone can't be enough. The issue is that profit is a metric yeah, that's a, important, but, there's but a, it cannot be the only metric that's measured. It's not the only metric, but I think the system is set up in a way that it's oriented on profit. And then the society steps in and gives us legislation and rules how we have to yes. behave within that system. And it's such an easy call to ask the legislation, the, the politicians to set up the right rule book for these kind of systems. Perhaps it's too easy to be said. And I'm pretty sure some people are going to grill me on the industry side for saying that. But I think that's a necessity that, that the yeah. food system needs to be checked and balanced by the society with legislation, putting rules into place. That is something I would have expected that the book asked for saying we need to have different rules. He does that at certain points. But coming back to the idea of profit, the profit comes with scalability or scaling up. Yeah? The simple thing is you reduce costs in producing foods by being bigger. The system is being built in a way that scale is king and that's going to have an impact on the price. And price is that, again, what the consumer is searching for. He's not searching for the moral correct product. He's searching for the cheapest product. And so that is my personal view on the whole food system. But he doesn't bring that up. He blames the industry and the traders and the politicians for setting up a rigged game. Because actually his thesis is that all of this, like the market liberalization and the building of this multinationals was argued based on we need this to make it cheaper for the consumers. He argues that that isn't actually always the case. So Rash Patel argues throughout the book that the liberalization of the market and global free trade has made the food system less stable and has driven prices instead of making it cheaper for consumers, especially in countries that are not wealthy. And that's something that we will talk more in depth about in the next episode. The point about historic responsibility that I'm about to mention is not from the book, but it is a thought that came to me while reading the book. To me, one thing that came up when we were pre-discussing the book yesterday is this concept of what I would call historic responsibility. So mm. let's go through like the idea that somebody joins Nestle. It's a corporation and this person wasn't the person that is responsible for loads of cacao farmers struggling to get by in the past or in, in the present. But Becoming part of an organization is a bit like being part of a country, but with a bit more choice, actually. <laughs> like, I was born into Germany, we were born into Germany, and we haven't been responsible for what has happened in the past. We weren't the ones doing it. But still, by being part of this country and being part of the culture, it is our responsibility to acknowledge what has happened mm. and to act and go out of our way to make sure that we don't do the same mistakes again and that we actively do something to mitigate the impacts it had. So I see that is the case also for corporations. And again, I, I prefer to talk about it as the individuals in corporations. I personally believe the change is in the corporations 
the opportunities in the corporations and therefore the power is also probably more with individuals in decision positions at a corporate than it is with startup founders. Because all the founders at some point, they start out with this mission and vision and we want to make everything better. And at some point they're bought by a mid-sized company that's bought by a corporate and then they get pressed into a square-shaped space in this massive conglomerate and all the fuzzies are cut off to be square and efficient hmm. in a food system that's based on certain metrics. So I believe that individuals in corporates can have some of the biggest impact by acknowledging this kind of systemic responsibility and saying, okay, it's not like there's blame. I'm not trying to be like, oh, pointing fingers. But having the possibility to affect change actually comes with the responsibility to affect it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my preach on a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Thanks for coming to my ceremony. You can join the red to green cult in the show notes. <laughs> I think the... Yes, you're right. You want to join? The, <laughs> you already joined. Okay. The, the, I'm going to give you an example. Last week we had a, a very intense discussion with my management board about uh, sustainability as being a part in our strategic framework. And I'm actually proud to say that we said besides risk, profit, growth, we now agreed upon sustainability as one of our pillars where we mm. measure our decision against. And it was a very intense discussion because it sometimes means less profit, but more sustainability. Yeah. Yeah? So mm -hmm. that's something where I totally agree with you that being an employee in an organization brings in the responsibility and the possibility to change and steer things in a different thing. But I'm the majority owner of a company, so I have the power to actually push that through. And it didn't come from my management, it came from me. And I think a person being employed by Nestle is a too small figure that he is actually able to shift an organization in a way that it's going to have an impact. But I like the way you have setting it up or you're explaining it because I still believe even if you are too small to have an impact, you are part of the system which makes you responsible of the actions of the system. And I think that's something you can't deny. So every person in a company needs to be aware of what the company is doing and the impact this is going to have and by that decide if you want to be part of it or not. And I think that there's a truth in it. I'm not so optimistic about the way they have a possibility to actually change something because that, that needs quite a lot of power again. And we've been talking a lot of power about power over the last, um, last hour. Yeah, I think I'm more optimistic on that, mainly because, of course, there's this whole notion. I once talked with somebody about voting, right? Mm. And he said, but my vote is just one vote of million, exactly. so yeah. I don't need to vote. And it's mm. the same thing with, oh, but my changes and the changes that I can affect in my company are not going to save the world, so it doesn't matter. No, mm. it absolutely matters. And if it doesn't matter on a base of, of it actually affecting change, it matters on an ideological level. Unlike uh, sometimes you do things out of principle and... I think in corporations, an inspiring story I recently got exposed to was at, in Tel Aviv, I was at the AgriVest conference. And I talked with somebody there who is a director in a cooperative of farmers. They have about 300,000 farmers. And he started to think about, okay, the, the future 
is uncertain. The soil health is eroding. Climate is changing. Everything is becoming more volatile. So how do we actually think better about how we use water, how we reduce the food waste, how we increase soil health? And within the company, he wasn't the kind of activist-looking kind of person. He wasn't wearing Birkenstock uh, and he wasn't telling everybody eat plant-based burgers. But he's the classic corporate guy who decided, okay, I'm going to speak business. I'm going to say we should reduce food waste for our bottom line. We should increase soil health for our bottom line. We should do all of these things because that will be better. And that is where I see possibility, of course. Like in your case, it was like a value change. You said our company is going to see sustainability as an independent value that we should mm. follow. Yeah. But in, there's so much possibility in just saying this is better for us, for the existing system and pushing that, just having the eyes open, where does profitability and sustainability overlap and where can I make it happen? Like I think we've talked about the farmers, we've talked about the kind of the traders, we've talked about the retailers, we've now talked about the processing industry, Nestle, as an example. And I think we should end up with the consumers as well. 800 million people starving, 1 billion people being stuffed. I like that kind of clear message he's putting in here because there is something wrong, undoubtedly. And I checked the numbers and verified the numbers he showed. And he's right. Yeah. And I think it's a good indication in the book that, that there is something going wrong in our food system if we are creating that kind of figures. Yeah. Something popped into my head because and especially in the alt protein space, everybody talks about, oh, we have a rise in global protein demand and that's true. But there's also this whole topic about feeding 10 billion people. And I like that he describes, for example, and I, I quote the book here, in Africa, recent starvation, mass scale hunger and hunger related deaths have not been triggered by the absence of appropriate crops. The truth is more complicated. He then criticizes that people talk about or policies talk about, oh, we need to grow more food. We need to grow more food. But then he has this example of this region called Lesotho. And he writes, I quote, the reason they are hungry is that many in Lesotho simply cannot afford to buy the food that is available because they have a spar supermarket there and it's just selling imported goods at prices which are too expensive while not allowing the local farmers to sell their goods. If you care about addressing starvation, then the policy and the poverty is actually the way to go maybe more important than just looking at the agriculture side of it. Yes. Rush Patel also dives a bit into how this paradox of stuffed and starved comes about. One example is the, 1990, the 1943 Bengal famine. One example is the 1943 Bengal famine, in which over 3 million people died. One example is, I quote, the 1943 Bengal famine, in which over 3 million people died. The paradox is that, at the same time as people died of hunger, there was enough food in Bengal to be able to feed them. In his path-breaking research, economist Amartya Sen observed that modern famines weren't related so much to the absence of food as to the inability to buy it. It's just that those who owned it had hoarded it, knowing that less food meant higher food prices. This is a hugely important finding because it breaks the link between the simple availability of food in the market 
and the question of whether the poor get to eat it. Times when the food is perceived to be scarce, the hourglass shape of the food system is almost certain to deliver not food, but hunger. The only way that famine can be overcome is to guarantee rights to hungry people that trump those of grain hoarders at the waste of the food system hourglass. This is very harsh critique. <laughs> and the part that I find the most interesting and the most relevant to the actual food tech field is the following. Sufficient food to feed the population has been present. What have failed have been the channels of distribution. Does Monsanto propose to address these? They do not, because that is not what they sell. And indeed, uh, that's very much linked to also a lot of food tech pitch decks. Um, if one is actually trying to meet a lack of protein in developing countries, well, most likely it's not even about the supply, but it is about how do you get it there and how, how do you change the system that, that people actually have the money to afford these solutions. So Raj Patel says we're asking the wrong questions. Quote, how do I change the flower to red? Not what would happen if I did? The questions that get asked are determined by the profit motive, a force that rarely meets the needs of the hungry. The questions are, how do we get the vitamin A in the rice? Or how do we get the poor to stop breeding? But never, why have the poor remained hungry? And there is a mounting pile of questions that remain unasked. For example, he also criticizes golden rice, which is genetically engineered rice, which is supposed to have more vitamin A coming from better carotene, which also makes it more orange, it's supposed to have more vitamin A. But he points out that depending on whether you hear the ranges from the biotech industry, it would require two bowls of rice to meet the daily requirement of better carotene. Or if you listen to independent assessments, it would be nearly 50 bowls of rice per day. And he criticizes, I quote, Half a carrot contains the recommended dose of vitamin A. The plain fact is that the majority of children in the global south suffer and die not because there is insufficient food or because better carotene rice is nationally lacking. They are malnourished and undernourished because all their parents can afford to feed them is rice. Yeah. And now, Marina, the question is, if I may ask, and you can ask the question too later, would you recommend somebody to read the book? Yes. <laughs> okay, why? <laughs> it's a dense book. It's a quite a chewy book. And I think he does a very good job of describing things very detailed. He has a lot of references. For me, not all the chapters were equally interesting. My favorite parts of the book were on the impact of the liberalization of the market, specifically India and Africa, the way that he described it were really interesting to me. So I would recommend people who want to understand the setup of the food system to read it. I don't think it's the strongest in terms of proposing solutions, and that's also fine. It's already a big chunk of work to be able to do the first part. I absolutely agree with the last part. It's not a, it's not a solution book. Yeah, but what do you think about the book? I think it's an uncomfortable book. And I like the way you said it's chewy. So it's very dense. And you said that too, in a way, 
that he has collected a lot of information insights about our food systems. And he puts it along the, the value chain of our food system from the farmers to the consumers or the retailers. And being part of that value chain and out of the system, it felt more than once uncomfortable playing along this game. Like I had to admit... I think there's a truth in it, what he says, and, and there's a truth in the way he describes it. And so I think for someone being part of the food system, yes, that's a good book to read. And to confront yourself with the truth of the author and your own truth. Like the way I've been confronted with my own truth here. And there were more than once I had to put down the book and think about why do I feel uncomfortable? in the way he's putting the story. At some points, I think he's oversimplifying or he's drawing the wrong conclusion, but still there's an underlying truth in it. If you know anyone who would appreciate talking about the meta topics in the food industry to ask the big and tough meta questions, it would help a lot if you just take 20 seconds to simply forward them a link to this episode. This helps us to keep producing content like this for you. A big thank you to the entire team, especially Celeste Gupta and Radhika Ramachandran for audio editing. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.